Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Whether we call the actions of the Sons of Liberty terrorism or terror or even something else, it was instrumental in awakening America to its potential to win a long struggle for freedom against a much stronger and obviously more powerful adversary. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Jeffrey Simon talking about the use of propaganda and terror in the Sons of Liberty. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer. And this is Dispatches. This episode was brought to you by Casemate, publishers of The Quaker and the Gamecock, Nathaniel Green, Thomas Sumter, and The Revolutionary War for the South by Andrew Waters. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we talk with Journal of the American Revolution contributor Jeffrey Simon about the use of propaganda in the earliest days of the American Revolution with the Sons of Liberty, perhaps its most famous special interest group. In the 21st century, we have a pretty good understanding of what selective propaganda looks like. Uh, It was perfected in the Soviet Union for most of the 20th century, and unfortunately, you can find it here in the United States in the 21st. But what Jeffrey Simon talks about today is going to be, uh, I guess we can say, a fresh look at a group that we think we know well. I was talking about propaganda and government spin, politics. That's Jeffrey Simon's world. And what he's doing for us today is bringing his interpretation and his worldview into the American revolutionary era that we are so familiar with. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Jeffrey Simon. Jeffrey Simon, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Tell us about your background. Well, I'm originally from New York. And I went to undergraduate school at UC Berkeley during those crazy days of the late 1960s. And it was really an interesting time to be there. And I studied history at Berkeley. And then I went for my master's in political science at Indiana University and then did my Ph.D. at USC. And I'm currently a writer and lecturer on terrorism. I teach an undergraduate class on terrorism at UCLA each summer And I really like to write books on different aspects of terrorism. Uh, The last one I wrote came out this past year. It's called The Alphabet Bomber, A Lone Wolf Terrorist Ahead of His Time. And that tells the story of a lone wolf who was active in Los Angeles during the 1970s. I also had a really incredible experience when I was doing research for my first book on terrorism, which was called The Terrorist Trap, America's Experience with Terrorism. And that I wrote many, many years ago. I learned during the course of my research that a former high school classmate of mine was a hostage in one of the most spectacular hijackings in terrorism history. 
This was when the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine hijacked four planes bound for New York from Europe and the Middle East on the same day in September of 1970. Now, they, the terrorists removed the passengers from the plane, blew up the airliners on the ground. It was one of the first media stage events in terrorism history. And there were about several hundred hostages being held. And the terrorists eventually released most of them except for 50 hostages, which they kept for more than three weeks in safe houses in Jordan. And my classmate was among the last to be released. I then found out as I was doing my research that another former high school classmate of mine had an experience with terrorism. The only problem was that her experience was in her becoming a terrorist. She joined the Weather Underground, which is a radical leftist extremist group active in the 60s and 70s in the U.S., and she was sentenced to three consecutive 25 years to life terms in New York State Prison for her role in a Brinks armored truck robbery and murders in Nyack, New York in 1981. And she was finally paroled this past year. And then when I went through my high school yearbook to look at the photos of the hostage and the terrorists, I found to my surprise that all three of us were together in a group picture for the Honor Society. I don't remember anything the Honor Society did except take the photo. And when I told that story during a radio call-in show, Somebody called in, wanted to know if the name of my high school was Terra High. So sometimes you can have some interesting experiences when you do research for a book. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, I think like most people, I've always been fascinated by the story of the American Revolution. I mean, after all, it's about the birth of our nation, and it's just a, it's a fascinating topic. But my interest in the Sons of Liberty was really sparked when I would give a talk or a lecture or an interview on terrorism, and every now and then I'd be asked by the interviewer or by somebody in the audience, well, were the American revolutionaries terrorists? So I decided to really delve into the activities of some of the revolutionaries to see if indeed the label of terrorist or terrorism would apply, and if so, what type of terrorism would we call it? And that drew me to the story of the Sons of Liberty. In your opinion, what is terror? And who is a terrorist? There, there is really no consensus definition on terrorism. You can find thousands, literally thousands of different definitions. It depends on bureaucratic interests, the interest of the individual making the definition. There are just many variations. But most definitions will see terrorism as violence or the threat of violence against noncombatants to achieve a political or religious objective and to influence an audience beyond the immediate target. Now, terror, on the other hand, would really be any act of violence or threat of violence, regardless of whether or not it had a political or religious objective. So, for example, somebody going into a convenience store with a weapon to rob the store or shoot people, they're causing terror, but we don't label it terrorism. Who were the Sons of Liberty? Now, the Sons of Liberty were basically an informal network of autonomous societies, and they flourished largely in the seaport cities and the you know, different colonies. Now, communications among these different groups was conducted mainly through letters that were written by committees of correspondence that were associated with each of these different groups. Now, the officers and committee members of the Sons of Liberty came from the middle and upper classes of society. Now, while First, most of the Sons of Liberty branches throughout the colonies were made up of merchants, lawyers, and skilled craftsmen. The groups eventually also encompassed working class people. The lower classes comprised most of the mobs that the Sons of Liberty, Liberty unleashed upon the stamp distributors and really anybody else who supported the Stamp Act. 
And among the Sons of Liberty were some of the more you know, famous revolutionaries, John Adams, John Hancock, and Paul Revere. Tell us the story of Andrew Oliver. Oh, yeah, it's a fascinating aspect of the whole story. Andrew Oliver was the recently appointed Stamp Act distributor for Colonial Massachusetts. His job, which wasn't to begin until November of 1765, when the Stamp Act took effect, was to sell these despised stamp papers to the colonists, which would be required for all types of printed material, ranging from licenses and contracts to newspapers and diplomas, even playing cards and dice, had to have the stamps embossed on them. So these direct internal taxes imposed by England were naturally very unpopular in the colonies. So on the morning of August 14, 1765, a group of people who would eventually become known as the Sons of Liberty hung Andrew Oliver's effigy on an elm tree in Boston. They then went to his home and beheaded the effigy while others in the crowd threw stones at his house, breaking windows. Then they burned the effigy and basically destroyed as much of his house as they could. So Oliver, of course, was really scared. And the next day, he sent letters to several individuals that he believed were associated with the mob, informing them that he had not, in fact, taken the position of stamp distributor and he had no interest in accepting the job. But then when a few months later, he received the commission from England to be stamp distributor, despite his not wanting the job anymore, the leaders of the mob, who now were known as the Sons of Liberty, demanded that he resign again, this time in person, at the Liberty Tree. And that's exactly what he did. What was said about the Sons of Liberty after the Oliver incident? Uh, Very important. I think the best quote about the incident was made several years later by Samuel Adams, who was closely aligned with the Sons of Liberty. He wrote the following in the Boston Gazette, quote, We cannot surely have forgot the accursed designs of a most detestable set of men to destroy the liberties of America with one blow by the Stamp Act, nor the noble and successful efforts we then made to divert the impending stroke of ruin aimed at ourselves and our posterity. The Sons of Liberty, on the 14th of August, 1765, a day which ought to forever be remembered in America, animated with the zeal for their country, then upon the brink of destruction, and resolved at once to save her, or like Samson, to perish in the ruins, exerted themselves with such distinguished vigor, end quote. Now, many historians also point to the Oliver incident as a major turning point in America's path to independence. For example, esteemed historian Gordon Wood wrote, quote, after 1765, the imperial relationship and American respect for British authority, indeed for all authority, would never be the same. And so basically, we could really see the significance of this single act uh, by the Sons of Liberty. In your article, you talk about propaganda by deed. What did you mean by that? Sure. Propaganda by deed was a term that would be coined by the anarchists in Russia and other countries in the late 19th century. The idea was that just talking, writing about the state of affairs or about an oppressive government was not enough to bring about a change or a revolution. You needed to make your point through aggressive action. And and for the anarchists, this usually meant using dynamite and guns to assassinate rulers and other government officials. And that's really where this term, propaganda by deed, originated. How did the Sons of Liberty apply the principles that you've just mentioned? 
the term, of course, wasn't used yet, but for the Sons of Liberty, they were really putting it into practice, beginning with the attack on Oliver's home. The Sons wanted to do something to ensure that a stamp act would never come into effect. Now, all the speeches, publications, and other attempts to rally the colonists against the Stamp Act were really not accomplishing that much, nor were they inspiring the colonists to take action prior to August 14th. Everything, though, changed after that date. That single day and night of violence set in motion a sequence of events that would eventually lead to the repeal of the Stamp Act. Focusing their anger on a single stamp distributor in Massachusetts could basically send signals throughout the colonies that any designated stamp distributor would take office is going to do so at his own peril. Now, using what we can call this model of mob terror that works so well in Boston, it became common in other colonies to see stamp distributors and other officials hung in effigy for funeral possessions for liberty to be carried out through the streets, burning of effigies, physical attacks on the homes of officials. And there actually was more than 60 incidents of mob terror in the 25 different locations following the attack on Oliver's home. Now, all the appointed stamp distributors eventually resigned, or they said, we're not going to take our appointment. And according to another esteemed historian, this is Pauline Mayer, she said, quote, without distributors, the Stamp Act could not go into effect. So the coercions of stamp men seemed rational, even efficient, end quote. What are some modern equivalents to the tactics we've just talked about? Well, I mean, I think basically almost all acts of terrorism can be considered a form of propaganda by deed. For example, ISIS, for example, will publish their ideology, manifestos, and so forth, but will not leave it at that. They rather will call upon their followers to take violent action anywhere they can against their perceived enemies, which basically is anyone not adhering to their extremist beliefs. And it's the same with many lone wolves who will publish a manifesto before they actually take violent action. They are, you know, really practicing this propaganda by deed. Now, of course, you know, when we're talking about the Sons of Liberty, what makes them so unique is that they didn't cause one loss of life. And, you know, there wasn't, uh, you know, bombs in those days, so they're not blowing things up. And they didn't shoot dead anybody. So it's a different type of terrorism or terror or whatever, however you want to label it. But it definitely was a application of propaganda by deed, that we're not just going to be publishing uh, speeches or we're not going to be doing certain manifestos. We're going to take action, and that's going to have the most lasting effect. What can this subject teach us about the revolutionary era as a whole? Well, I believe it really teaches us that this calculated or restrained use of terror can indeed change the course of history. Whether we call the actions of the Sons of Liberty terrorism or terror or even something else, it was instrumental in awakening America to its potential to win a long struggle for freedom against a much stronger and obviously more powerful adversary. And I believe that without the Sons of Liberty, there likely would have never been an American revolution. And without their restrained use of terror, they very likely would not have been able to accomplish as much as they did. Jeffrey Simon, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.